Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 28th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Although the planned League of the South demonstrations that were scheduled for September 29th at Sycamore Shoal State Park in Tennessee have been canceled, Melissa and I have come to the area anyway, as in our plans to attend the event, we made other commitments which we wanted to keep. So this presentation is being pre-recorded Friday afternoon for tonight's program and publication at Christagenia. I hope to write about the canceled event and the implications of that cancellation in the weeks to come. The state of Tennessee has indeed made itself an agent of the Antifa. This is part four of our series identifying the biblical beast of the field. In my presentation from chapter two, and this is a digression from from our topic, in my presentation from chapter two of the Gospel of John, which I made here last week, which was subtitled Challenging Orthodoxy, I strongly criticized the so-called Church Father, who is popularly known as John Chrysostom. Some people, mostly Orthodox Christians, took offense to that. They should be ashamed. They simply do not understand that their Church Fathers are not God, but men. Yahweh our God cannot righteously be criticized. Jesus, or Yahshua Christ, who is God incarnate, cannot righteously be criticized. His chosen apostles were mere men, and each had their faults. But their message, which is directly from him, should not be criticized. But the, whenever, whenever we elevate a man, to that level of veneration by which the man cannot be criticized, we engage in idolatry. I will not engage in or be subject to Orthodox and Roman Catholic idolatry. One vocal complainant told me that I should repent for attacking his idol, Chrysostom but he did not address any of the substance of my criticism. This is typical of idolaters. So I asked him and several others like him, which of the anti-Nicene church fathers is it that orthodoxy follows completely and none of them have answered, not one. I do not believe they will answer because it can indeed be demonstrated that they will be found to have denied the very men upon which they claim to have their theological foundations. Identity Christians worship Christ and believe the words of his apostles and prophets. But Orthodox Christians claim an authority for tradition and church fathers whom we see as mere men. We can cite them where they elucidate early Christian history 
and we can discuss their attitudes on many subjects. But we cannot venerate them as gods, and we cannot view them as having been infallible, especially since they often disagree with one another. The Word of God is our authority, as the scriptures themselves tell us, and not any traditions of men. The beginning of tyranny is the desire to rule over another man's faith, and we have a Christian duty to resist such tyranny. For that, the early martyrs had died. Now we shall present part four of Clifton Emmerheiser's series of essays identifying the beast of the field. Before I begin, I will only explain that in the past, many identity Christians have followed the mistaken belief that the non-white races were created by Yahweh God as the so-called beast of the field or beast of the earth in Genesis. Many so-called identity teachers have labeled them the Hebrew, after the Hebrew phrase, Sheeretz, for that reason. Clifton disproved that hypothesis by going through and examining all of the occurrences of that phrase in Scripture, the Hebrew phrase in Scripture, and finding that it almost always referred to wild animals. Furthermore, Clifton examined all of the verses of the Old Testament where the term beast appears to refer to people, and found that the Hebrew word is always behemoth, and not she'aretz. Behemoth is a word which is also very frequently and very clearly used to describe large animals, beasts of burden such as oxen or camels or horses. This is true even where certain identity teachers of the past claimed that the term was Che'aretz, where the Hebrew term was actually Behema. The result of this research is that no single Hebrew term exclusively describes the non-white races, and as a result, there is no record that they were ever created by Yahweh. Both Clifton and I have for many years illustrated from the parables and the revelation of Yahshua Christ that they were certainly not created by Yahweh. Rather, in some instances, beast and other terms were used at various times as pejoratives in order to refer to non-white races. But they are certainly not technical biological labels. The scripture leaves us no such labels, except in the nuances, no such labels for non-whites, except in the nuances of meaning in some of the words translated as stranger. But even they were not used consistently when we compare Moses and Ezra or the books of the Chronicles, which were written a thousand years after Moses. Once we understand all of this, our Christian identity position in regard to non-whites 
can rest on a solid biblical foundation. Now in part three of this series, which we presented here two weeks ago, Clifton had shown from an article discussing the transgression of Genesis chapter 3, which is in Adam Clark's Bible commentary, that devil and ape were called by the same term in Arabic. Resorting to Arabic is not entirely out of line in this instance, as our knowledge of Hebrew and Aramaic are incomplete, and Arabic was derived from Aramaic or from older variations which are closely related to both Hebrew and Aramaic. In this regard, I concluded that the original Arab tribes were white Shemites and Hamites, who became mingled with one another and with the apparently white Canaanite bastards in the lands to the east and south of the Israelites. They only became brown later in their history, as they mingled in turn with other non-white races. It is very, very likely that they, or the original authors of the language they maintained, had later equated apes to devils and satyrs, simply because they understood that the ape-like non-Adamic races were devils and satyrs, which are hybrid human-animal creatures from Greek mythology. Since the word Seder has a Hebrew origin, it is all the more likely that this is true. So for that reason, the word cannabis in Arabic, the Arabic word cannabis, I should say, K-H-A-N-A-S in English, can describe either an ape or a devil. Clifton then cited the Enoch literature found in the Dead Sea Scrolls to establish the fact that the so-called fallen angels had indeed corrupted the creation of Yahweh in prehistoric times, and we would assert that to be the origin of the non-white races. With that, we will proceed with the next part of Clifton's series, Identifying the Beast of the Field, Part 4. Clifton begins. In the first three parts of the series, I have addressed the misapplication of the Hebrew word che, Strong's number 2416, where some apply it to Genesis chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 to mean the origin of the non-white races. Others misapply Strong's number 2423, Sheva a Chaldean word not found anywhere in the Bible other than the book of Daniel, to mean the origin of the non-white races. Neither of these theories are correct, as a better case can be made that the term behema, Strong's number 929, which is a four-footed quadruped, is idiomatic for a two-legged biped creature, or beast of the field. Some may argue that behema, a four-footed quadruped, cannot apply to a two-legged biped. But I will show evidence that there are specimens of ape men that can walk both as four-footed quadrupeds or two-legged bipeds. And of course, Clifton's language throughout all of these presentations is rather concise. 
The grammar can certainly be filled in in many areas. However, Clifton gets his meaning across, so I didn't desire to rewrite it. Clifton sought to squeeze all of these short essays on the beasts of the field and the hundreds of others which he wrote on other topics, biblical topics, into a single sheet of paper containing four columns on each side in very small 10 or perhaps 11 point print in an aerial narrow condensed font. And he, that was his, his um, purpose in handing these short essays out as brochures. And he wrote so that he could get as many ideas as possible into that shorter space and squeeze perhaps 35 or 3,600 words on a single sheet of paper. Here I would assert that the counter-argument concerning Shehoretz and Behema, the counter-argument dissolves. The counter-argument to our idea that the Shehoretz cannot be the other races dissolves in the simple fact that names of animals are often used in scripture as pejorative labels for people, even for Adamic and Israelite people, and therefore behema can certainly be used to describe people rather than being used in its literal meaning to describe beasts of burden and other large animals. So continuing with Clifton, because here his argument presents other interesting facts and perspectives. The first one, he says, the first one that I would bring to the attentions, to the reader's attention, is Oliver, the chimpanzee, who many claim is a human Z, half human and half ape. The case of Oliver has appeared several times on television and is now posted on several internet websites I have my own personal VHS tape of the Oliver story. It is my opinion that Oliver is a genetic throwback of the angels that sinned when they mixed their genetics with the ape family of animals, or as we would refer to them today, as the beast of the field or the non-white races. To establish some credibility for the scenario, let's take a look at some scientific evidence from the internet. Now, strangely, Clifton did not cite here the website article from which this came, and I cannot find an exact match today. But there are several website articles that do discuss this chimpanzee Oliver, who seemed to have many human features. He walked upright and erect all the time, where a regular chimpanzee cannot possibly do that because of the shape of its pelvis. Oliver also lived to be about 40 years old, which is twice the lifespan of the average chimpanzee. So Clifton begins his citation from an unknown source, and he says, The trip to Japan, these are people describing Oliver. The trip to Japan was a turning point for Oliver, because even though his owner was told that it was going to be for scientific purposes, 
it was clear that the Japanese media wanted to portray Oliver for entertainment. In a show that grabbed in almost 26 million viewers, Oliver was put through a set of very simple tests conducted on him. A test looking for the center of gravity in Oliver concluded that he was more human than ape. Now, I must say that Oliver was very... The Oliver... The evaluations of Al Oliver, let me put it that way, that's better, are very controversial. And the nature of the beast is still argued in social media and even in institutions such as Stanford University. But continuing with Clifton, <clears throat> another test of the chromosomes concluded that he had 47 chromosomes. A human has 46 chromosomes, and an ape has 48 chromosomes, meaning that 47 was in the middle. So the possibility of Oliver being a hybrid was high. Out of the 40 cells that had been tested, 38 cells had 48 chromosomes, but two cells had 47. Now, personally, since all of an embryo is formed out of the joining of one egg and one sperm creating one whole cell. I don't know how that could happen, but that's the claim that Clifton recorded. So it concludes, his media attention didn't stop there, as a Japanese actress said that she would sleep with Oliver, and this even would be telecasted on TV. Now, Japanese animal fetishes are not unique. Continuing with Clifton, he says a little later in the same article, a very detailed test, and he's quoting, a very detailed test conducted on Oliver by the University of Chicago revealed that Oliver had 48 chromosomes and not 47. It did seem apparent that there was some sort of mutation, but the conclusion remained that Oliver was an ape. Could Oliver's habit of walking on two legs mean that Oliver, Oliver was an example from that transition stage where an ape began to walk like man. Could it possibly, and that's of course never happened, they only assume that happened because they believe in evolution, could it possibly mean that if Oliver was able to breed, then eventually an offspring would be produced, what today we, we today call a human being? Questions will cloud your mind. But watching the footage of Oliver just makes you want to believe that he is a hybrid of a human and an ape. There is no denial in it that Oliver will intrigue you. Now, of course, these are the sentiments of whomever had written the article which Clifton was quoting. And they did not belong to Clifton himself. So continuing with his citation... There have been rumors, which are apparently true, that an, and there's no documentation for this included, but that's something we'll just have to accept. Not that they're true, but that there's no documentation. That an ape and human hybrid had been created in the 1920s, but the infant born was killed by the creators for fear of media exposure. This makes, this makes you wonder what really caused the fear. Was that what was that infant like? 
In another incident, China created a similar being where a female ape was inseminated with human sperm and was impregnated with a human ape with a human and ape cross. But rioters destroyed the building and the surrogate ape died. Now, while it is disputed whether Oliver was actually a hybrid, there are many similar examples. So Clifton now responds and says that, while today's scientists attempt to prove evolution with this evidence, my position strongly suggests that this evidence rather points its finger at the evil of the fallen angels. Next, we have Basu, a man-ape hybrid. Basu lives in the valley of Dades, near the town of Skoura in Morocco. Now, this a... Um, we have an old National Vanguard article titled Basu, Man-Ape Hybrid which has long been posted at our Saxon Messenger website. I will link to that here when I publish this podcast. There is also a similar creature, similar to Basu, the man-ape hybrid, which lived in China, I believe. And I will also provide a link to that. So Oliver and even more human examples than Oliver certainly exist, and Oliver was really not unique. Here Clifton is citing another copy of that same article we have posted on Basu, and there are pictures of Basu available and photographs, and he is clearly a man-ape hybrid. Clifton says, here are some excerpts from one of the many internet websites where data on Basu is posted. There he sleeps in the trees and subsists on dates, berries, and insects. He wears no clothes, uses no tools, and speaks only in grunts. Basu's existence raises some very troubling questions for the true believers in the TV religion of universal human equality. It has been hard enough for them to try to fit blacks and whites together into that scheme without having to worry about Basu. What is Basu? No one really knows. He displays both ape-like and man-like characteristics. Those who have studied him, however, have been reluctant to accept the suggestion that he is the product of a mating between a human being, Negro or Berber, and an anthropoid ape, all three of which Morocco has in abundance. Yet Basu is clearly something special, and not just a deformed human being. With arms so long, his fingers hang below his knees when he stands upright, with massive bony ridges above his eyes, and a sharply receding forehead, with jaws, teeth, chin, and cheekbones, all showing pronounced ape-like characteristics. He is a true ape-man, but there has never been a scientific effort, largely for religious reasons, to actually determine whether a union between some subhuman species, a negro, say, and some species of ape might be fertile. Numerous other examples of interspecies matings which yield hybrid offspring are known, 
The mule is a cross between a horse and a donkey. And the, the liger is a cross between a lion and a tiger, for example. If Basu is indeed such a hybrid, and no other plausible explanation for him has yet been brought forward, then his existence throws a real monkey wrench into the liberal, neoliberal theory of the separateness of man from the rest of nature. And our Chinese example is on video and a lot more striking than even Basu, and, and just as ape-like. Now Clifton will cite a case of a so-called hairy monkey child in Kazakhstan. The incident is not unique in the area. It actually happens quite often in India, China, and the surrounding countries. That so-called people are born with tails, or develop horns, or other animal-like characteristics. We actually have pictures and video of a, an aged Chinese woman with horns growing out of her forehead. One clearly a long, perhaps three-inch long horn, and, and the other side only having a large dark spot where, it, where we could imagine that the other horn belonged. In another such incident, in 2014, there was, a reported, there was reported in Punjab a monkey boy with a seven-inch tail who was being worshipped by locals as some, some sort of Hindu, as an incarnation of some sort of Hindu monkey god. Monkey, I have a hard time saying it, I'm sorry. Monkey god. But here Clifton speaks of another and older case. And we'll have links to the case in Punjab as well. And, and there are videos and images exhibited there at Christagenia. Clifton says of his older case, his 2002 case, then there is a case of a hairy monkey child discovered living in Kazakhstan. And this was published July 24th, 2002 by the Russian newspaper Pravda. The monkey child has been found by the doctors of Red Cross in Kazakhstan. The name of the six-year-old boy is Albay. He was found in the mountain village of Terimagash, not far from the Kazakh-Chinese border. The child's body and head are covered with thick hair. Moreover, the form of the child's head fully corresponds with the form of a monkey cranium. According to the doctors, such a strange appearance of the boy could be explained with mutation caused by radiation the parents of the child were once exposed to. Moreover, the 26-year-old mother and 33-year-old father are relatives. Now, related to the other case which I had just mentioned in India, scientists also attempted to describe that in their own terms as a form of spina bifida which is really only, just like this claim of radiation, is really only a way to excuse a race of bastard hybrids and ignore the simple truths of our ancient prehistory as it is explained in our scripture. Continuing with Clifton's citation of the 2002 case, 
which was reported in Moscow in the Russian newspaper Pravda. The father of the boy is himself astonished with this phenomenon. His friends even suggested to him to give the boy to the circus. Though the parents decided to send the child to school, the parents understand that the boy will face many troubles in his life. Even a look at the mirror will most likely make him sad, though the parents want to prepare the boy for life. The doctors who observe the child state that it is very sociable and has an excellent health. To this, Clifton responds, and he says, I reported on this case in my Watchman's Teaching Letter number 52 for August 2002 thusly. And Clifton, citing his own teaching letter, says, As I was in the process of preparing this lesson today, June 26, 2002, there was a special news segment on the Fox News Channel at 9.50 a.m concerning a topic which they dubbed Wonder Boy. It was a segment about a boy from Kazakhstan in Russia, a region in Central Asia, northeast of the Caspian Sea, west of China. If you happen to catch that short portion of the news, you can verify what I am about to relate. In my opinion, Wonder Boy is an excellent exhibit of a throwback of certain men to the animal stage. In fact, the doctor which the commentator was interviewing, called people like him monkey men. Further, they used the term genetic mutation in describing him. Asked if he would grow out of this condition, the doctor indicated the, the condition would persist throughout adulthood. He mentioned using hair laser treatment to get rid of the excessive amount of hair. The doctor also mentioned there were other examples like him in Mexico, citing a father and son in that category. The best description I could give of what I observed of Wonder Boy, or Monkey Boy, is that he appeared to be a cross between a Mongolian male and a chimpanzee ape, or possibly a capuchin monkey. And that's the end of Clifton's citation, where he moves on to another. In Watchman's teaching letter number 63, I added the following comment. I had heard stories that some of the Chinese prisoners captured during World War II actually had spurs of tails. When I saw that wonder boy, though I couldn't tell whether he had a tail, my impression was that he pointed back to references in ancient literature alluding to the genetic engineering of Satan and his fallen angels. If you have read all of the preceding, then you will remember that the Anti-Nicene Fathers also understood that the fallen angels commingled and formed that most infamous race, and I believe Clifton there is speaking of Tertullian, but Justin Martyr also repeated the concept. When I observed that Wonder Boy. I became convinced that the other races were never created, but are simply DNA genetic mutations. As a result of my two observations from television, I no longer subscribe to the sixth and eighth day creation theory.
And that's the end of his reference from Watchman's teaching letter number 63. Now Clifton offers a citation from Irenaeus, a Christian bishop in Gaul in the late 2nd century AD, perhaps around 180 AD. From the Antinicene Fathers, that means the early church writers and bishops from before the Council of Nicaea, in Irenaeus's Against Heresies, Book 4, Chapter 36, Paragraph 4, and Clifton quotes, Since the Son of God is always one and the same, he gives to those who believe on him a well of water springing up to eternal life. But he causes the unfruitful fig tree immediately to dry up. And in the days of Noah, he justly brought on the deluge for the purpose of extinguishing that most infamous race of men then existent, who could not bring forth fruit to God, since the angels that sinned had commingled with them. In other words, since they were a bastard race and acted as he did in order that he might put a check upon the sins of these men, but that at the same time he might preserve the archetype, the formation of Adam, and it was he who rained fire and brimstone from heaven in the days of Lot upon Sodom and Gomorrah, an example of the righteous judgment of God, that all may know that every tree that brings forth not good fruit shall be cut down and cast into the fire. Reading this passage carefully, one can only deduce that Irenaeus believed the archetype Adam to be what Yahweh God sought to preserve, and that the others, descended from fallen angels, at least in part, were a rotten tree. So, It seems that Irenaeus believes that the trees of these words of Christ represent genetic family trees. This is exactly what identity Christians also believe. Clifton responds, and he says, It should be apparent from this passage from the Anti-Nicene Fathers, that the early Christian elders understood that it was the fallen angels who mixed their genetics with the Adamic women to produce a hybrid, mutated category of people, which survived as Rephaim and among the other races. <clears throat> and since this is what happened at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it parallels exactly the seduction of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. At Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we are informed that the great dragon, that old serpent, devil, and Satan are all the same entity, meaning the serpent and his seed, or offspring. And since the serpent was already present here on earth, in Genesis chapter 3, the original fall of Satan with his angels had to be prior to Adam and Eve. So the incident at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, is a second or third satanic assault. And since Adam and Eve were not yet formed or created at Satan's original fall, the first hybridization by the devil and his angels 
would have to have been with animal kind. Here I would further assert that since there was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, representing a corrupt race of people, and since outside of the garden was the land of Nod, which is wandering, or metaphorically sin, and since Cain found a wife there, and had reason to build a city, that there were for a long time corrupted races upon the earth, as the archaeological and historical records also demonstrate. Now returning to Clifton, it is only with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have become aware of the importance of the Book of Enoch and the Book of Giants, which many during the 19th century had scoffed at. From my undated Smith's Dictionary of the Bible, which had Miss Lily Summerskill, St. Mark's SS, Christmas 1890, written on the front flyleaf under the topic Giants on page 212, and perhaps that SS stands for Sunday School. Though the prevalent opinion, quoting <clears throat> Smith's Dictionary of the Bible from the 19th century, though the prevalent opinion both in the Jewish and early Christian church is that they were angels, it was probably this ancient view which gave rise to the spurious book of Enoch and the notion quoted from it by St. Jude, verse 6, and alluded to by St. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. I would say that while I agree that the Ethiopic book of Enoch the only one known to that commentator, has spurious portions. The commentator mistakenly took for granted that to be the source of Jude's citation. And I find his remark, questioning the authority of the apostle, to be pretentious. Here Clifton means to illustrate that there was indeed a legitimate book of Enoch that the apostle had cited and which is now known only from the fragments found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Clifton continues in reference to them. From the book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, A New Translation, by Michael Wise, Martin Abegg Jr., and Edward Cook, on page 246 we read in part, significantly, and this is from one of their introductions to some of the Enoch literature, significantly the remnants of several almost complete copies of the Book of Enoch in Aramaic were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it is clear that whoever collected the scrolls considered it a vitally important text, because so many copies were found. All but one of the five major components of the Ethiopic anthology have turned up among the scrolls. But even more intriguing is the fact that additional previously unknown or little-known texts about Enoch were discovered at Qumran. The most important of these is the Book of Giants. Now Clifton takes a turn to another topic, returning to his topic from last week, or from part three of this series, I'm sorry. But let us return to Adam Clark's question which I cited from his commentary on Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, in part 3 of this series. This is what he stated in part. 
Is it not strange that the devil and the ape should have the same name, derived from the same root, and that root so very similar to the word in the text, meaning that Kanash, the Arabic spelling of the word, is akin to the Hebrew Nakash, the Hebrew spelling of the word for serpent. Clifton says, like so many scholars, so many other scholars in the Hebrew language, Clark had gone to the Arabic to check on certain lost Hebrew roots not found in the biblical text. In researching this subject, Clifton says, I also find it strange that devils in the Old Testament is Strong's number 8163, Seder, and has essentially the same meaning as Seder in the Greek. So evidently they have a similar etymology. Of course, the Seder in the Greek came directly from the Hebrew form of the word. In fact, the King James Version translators translated 8163, Hebrew number 8163, as Seder in Isaiah 34:14. To demonstrate that Adam Clark did his homework correctly, I will show evidence that the Greek term for the Hebrew Seder also has connotations of an ape. My first source is from the 1894 ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, volume 21, pages 336 and 337 under the topic Seder. That set of Encyclopedia Britannicas is now sitting on my bookshelf in Florida. Seder, Clifton actually very carefully sliced some pages out with his razor so that he could scan them. A lot of us may think that's sacrilege. Clifton only thought that it was helping him do what he needed to do in order to make his various points. From the article from the 1894 Encyclopedia Britannica on the Seder, in ancient Greek mythology, the satyrs were spirits, half-human, half-bestial, that haunted the woods and mountains, companions of Pan and Dionysus. Pan himself was a satyr. Fancy represented them as strongly built, with flat noses, pointed ears, and the tails of horses or goats. They were a roguish and wanton but faint-hearted folk, lovers of wine and women, ever roaming the wild to the music of pipes and cymbals, castanets and bagpipes, dancing with the nymphs or pursuing them, striking terror into men whose cattle they killed and whose women they made love to. It should say they raped or seduced. In the earlier Greek art, they appear as old and ugly, much like wild apes. But in later art, especially in the works of the Attic School, the school at Athens, this savage character is softened into a more youthful and graceful aspect. There is a famous statue 
supposed to be a copy of a work of Praxiteles, representing Praxiteles, a famous ancient Athenian sculptor, representing a graceful satyr leaning against a tree with a flute in his hand. In Attica, there was a species of drama known as the satiric drama, the satire. It parodied the legends of gods and heroes, and the chorus was composed of satyrs. Euripides's play of the Cyclops is the only extant example of this kind of drama. The symbol of the shy and timid satyr was the hare, H-A-R-E, the rabbit. In some districts of modern Greece, the spirits known as calicensars, or malevolent goblins, offer points of resemblance to the ancient satyrs. They have goat's ears, and the feet of asses or goats are covered with hair and love women and the dance. The herdsmen of Parnassus believe in a demon of the mountain who is lord of hares and goats. So the history of the view of satyrs in ancient Greece parallels the history of the estimation of Negroes today. Originally, they were depicted as violent and savage brutes, and now they are depicted as graceful and intelligent demigods. There is truly nothing new under the sun. Continuing with Clifton's citation, in the authorized version, the King James Version, of Isaiah chapter 13, verse 21, and chapter 34, verse 14. The word Seder is used to render the Hebrew serum, hairy ones, a kind of demon or supernatural being known to Hebrew folklore as inhabiting waste places is meant. A practice of sacrificing to the serum is alluded to in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7, where the English version has devils. They correspond to the shaggy demon of the mountain pass, or the Azab al-Aqaba of old Arab superstition. But the satyrs of the of the gloomy Semitic deserts, faith in which is not yet extinct, are much more terrible than those of Greece. And that word serum is related to the word satyr. Linguistically, it is probably the root of the word satyr. A second witness is from the World Scope Encyclopedia, volume 10, under the topic Satyrs. In Greek legends, a race of woodland spirits who personified the free life of the forest, they were generally represented as half human and half animal, the upper part being that of a human being and the lower that of an animal. Their appearance was both grotesque and repulsive, 
but their life was one of pleasure and self-indulgence, mostly given to the chase and wild music. At intervals, they partook of wine and indulged in restful slumber. Both mortals and the gentle woodland nymphs dreaded them, mostly because of their reckless sports. They were represented in the train or entourage of Dionysius, and were inseparably connected with his worship. <clears throat> Greek poets delighted to praise the innocent frolics of the little satyrs, and sculptors represented the older forms as nearly approaching human beings, but placed horns upon their heads and gave them the feet and legs of goats. The satyr of Praxiteles at Athens is a famous specimen of Greek sculpture. Pliny used the word to indicate a kind of ape. Satyrs sound just like most varieties of non-whites in their behavior, in, in the aspect of their behavior. Now Clifton comments on his citation, or citations, what we have here are two different stories, one told by the Greek language and another which is older only by Greek art or sculpture. Here Pliny takes a look at Greek sculpture and declares it appears more like an ape than a goat it being the satyr. The World Scope Encyclopedia under the topic satyrs doesn't indicate whether this was Pliny the Elder or Pliny the Younger, but it doesn't make any difference as they were both highly educated men, and Pliny the Elder, who lived from 23 to 79 AD, oversaw the education of Pliny the Younger, who lived from 61 through 115 AD, and was his nephew. Pliny the Elder majored in natural history, or zoology, and certainly the article is referring to him. Clifton just wasn't familiar with the complete literature of these two men. He says these men were Roman citizens, and Pliny the Elder published upward of 200,000, I'm sorry, of 2,000 volumes of his works. And I am sure he knew the difference between an ape and a goat. So with this, we have the Plinies agreeing with the Arabic finding of Adam Clark, that the devil had some connection with an ape. While Clark was a master of several languages, and had read extensively the many classics, evidently he never read Pliny's natural history, or didn't catch the connection between an ape and the Greek satyr when he read it. How an ape became a goat among the Greeks can only be conjectured. Actually, how a satyr went from being depicted as an ape to being depicted as a goat can only be conjectured. Maybe it was because the Greek islands and peninsulas were not a natural habitat for them, meaning for apes. And over time, the Greeks substituted the goat in place of the ape. However it may have happened, we should not discard the entire analogy of the satyr being half goat and half man, inasmuch as Joshua Christ separated the sheep nations from the goat nations. Surely he wanted the Greeks to comprehend the bastard status 
of the half-goat and half-man nations. So he had to state his admonitions in words that they would understand. Paul made it very clear in Hebrews 12.8 that there are but two kinds of people, sons and or bastards, and nothing in between. The only way that could be accounted for, the only way that could be accounted for, is the fact that the angels who sinned had mixed their genetics with animals, as well as Adamkind, on separate occasions. Had the Greeks still understood the ape connotations of their earlier art and sculpture, I am sure that Christ would have used ape nations rather than goat nations. There is also the possibility that the later Greeks confused earlier Greek legend equating satyrs with apes as relating to the wild goat, the Bezor or Cretan wild goat, which is reddish-brown in winter, of which only a few remain. The Bezor, which is actually a wild ibex, a subspecies of goat, certainly is endangered, although now there are a large number of them in the in the American Southwest, they've been sort of transplanted. Inasmuch as today <clears throat> we follow the terms sheep nations and goat nations, I will quote some excerpts from the complete New Testament word study dictionary by Spiro Zodiates, or Zodiates, on page 655, pertaining to Strong's numbers. 2055 and 2056, the two Greek words for goat, and there's a little confusion here I will clear up after Clifton's citations from Spiro Zodiates. 2056, used as the emblem of wicked men because of their inferior value. I don't agree with that. Zodiates is simply wrong. Zodiates steered Clifton wrong. 2055. Sheep and goats pasture together, but never trespass on each other's domains. They are kept together, but they do not mix. They may be seen to enter the fold in company, but once inside, they are kept separate. Clifton says it should also be noted that the goats of Christ's time and locality were mostly black. Could that be a factor in his parable? Also, what other reason do we need for complete 100% segregation. Actually, Clifton erred here. Zodiates evidently steered him wrong, and apparent and and caused him to come to the wrong conclusions. And Eryphion, Strong's number 2055 is only a diminutive, it's a diminutive form, and therefore speaks of, speaking of animals, it describes a young version of an Arethus 2056. Arethus and Arithion are the same word, one's diminutive, that's all, and they are both the same sort of goat. Another word for goat found in the New Testament is tragus, which is 
the source for our English word tragedy, after the plays of the Greek tragic poets. The goat plays, the tragedies were goat plays. The tragus is generally a male goat or a he-goat. Clifton continues by remarking on the different versions of the Greek satyr. Of these two variations of the story, I prefer the ape version over the goat version because of the report given in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 5 through 26. This passage instructs Aaron, the high priest, to take two goats and cast lots over them one of them to become a slain sacrifice, while the other on which the lot fell, he should lay his hands upon it, confessing all of the sins and iniquities of Israel, and then lead it into the wilderness. These two goats represented Christ's two natures, manlike and divine. Christ, like the first goat without sin, was slain as a sacrifice. But, the, but as the second, he was quickened by the Spirit into everlasting life. Ironically, though, Seder is both is ape, both in Arabic and Greek. See the last paragraph of part three of this series, where, of course, Clifton concluded by describing that that same word, kanas, described both an ape and a devil in the Arabic language. Clifton here equating the Seder, of course, to a devil. The ultimate purpose here is to point out that our earliest biblical cultures, Hebrew and Greek, thought of the bastard races in the outlying areas to be half man and half goat, or half ape demons, or even half angel bastard spirits. Clifton and I both saw that the non-white races fit into that category alone. Yahweh God be willing, we will return with part five of this series next week. Tomorrow evening, and I will be back in Florida, tomorrow evening we have Dr. Michael Hill and a discussion of a faith A faith for our struggle, a common faith which all Southern white Christians should share, regardless of their chosen denomination. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and certainly not the God of Jews and satyrs. And good night.